This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Isaac Dover. Jim Fallows is a staff writer here at The Atlantic, but in addition to the articles he writes for us, he has another project that's taken off over the last four years. He's a pilot, and he and his wife Deborah have been flying around the country from small town to small town to better understand the parts of it we don't see in national political coverage. I spent a lot of my time traveling the country covering the presidential primary campaign, which means a whole different set of expectations and events. And today we're going to compare notes. One of the questions that I really want to get into with him, are things as grim as they seem? Jim, thanks for being here on Radio Atlantic. Um, My pleasure, Isaac. Thanks for having me. So your time in politics goes back to Jimmy Carter. Uh, You signed on to the campaign when he was in that transition point between Nobody's ever heard of this guy, and this guy is actually going to be the president. Yes, this was the spring of 1976. I had I was living in Texas. My wife was in graduate school, University of Texas. I'd started doing pieces for the Atlantic as a freelancer while working for Texas Monthly, and out of the blue, I had some friends on the Carter campaign. They were needing to staff up, uh, as it looked like he was getting some traction. So I signed on a little before the convention and was on for the ride. That moment in American politics is probably the closest analog to what we're going through now. It's the post-Watergate, post-Nixon resignation time. It's uh, Ford trying to say the long national nightmare is over. uh, And this sense of normalcy that people were looking for, that obviously is what it seems is at least part of what the 2020 campaign is going to be, driven by whether people like the upturn uh, and and like or, or like getting to some other kind of calmer time. Does it feel that way? Do you feel like you're reliving 76? <laughs> uh, it, it, it does. And I hadn't thought of it in just this way until you asked the question. But I think you can make comparisons of three sequential elections, 68, 72 and 76, which are sort of the times I was a I was in college and then immediately after college uh, through that, that time. And th- there are elements of each one. You know, 1968, that was, that was the American hellscape. You know, when Martin Luther King was assassinated and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and Lyndon Johnson was deciding not to run and the Vietnam War was just exploding. And so that was – that's one vision of what's happening now. 1972 is when Richard Nixon was was coasting to his crushing defeat of George McGovern in a sense of a lot of people were unhappy with the prevailing regime, but they couldn't do anything about it. And then 76, as you say, it was after Nixon had resigned for to give him the pardon. There was the withdrawal, U.S. withdrawal from Saigon just, you know, not that long before the 76 election. And Jimmy Carter probably there's no other time in American history when he could have been elected than that. When somebody who was a one-term governor of Georgia could say – could address this sense that people wanted to be better than the country had been for the previous decade. So I think that that each slice of that historical uh, pie or cake or whatever has some connection to to the moment. Carter was then ignored, more than ignored, uh, (laughs) snubbed by Democrats for a long time. This time, covering this election for me, he comes up a lot. Uh, And he comes up a lot in people saying, oh, Jimmy Carter returned to normalcy. Jimmy Carter came from nowhere. All these things that people are talking about. One of the things that Carter himself has said, and he said this to me in an interview that I did with him last year, he said it elsewhere, is that his race was possible because of how comparatively little it took to fund elections then. Uh, And so there's a real difference in that. But I hear that 
nonetheless on the trail all the time that these candidates, many of them, except for the the most popular in the polls, and uh, are looking to be the Jimmy Carter now. Yes, and there's a, a particular, I, I guess there is the meta connection you were mentioning, both about the theme of these times and the difference in campaign finance, where Carter, his early campaign, you know, he would famously carry his own like suit bag over his shoulder when he was getting on and off a plane, and he was driving around and little rented cars or Volkswagens or whatever with his, his staffers. So so those are contrast to those days. Carter also, there's a direct comparison. I believe he was the first, buddy, first person to show that if you spent a lot of time in Iowa, you could have that be the validating experience. Somebody you know, that's who, the Iowa caucuses yes. are a thing because of him. Yes. They, Iowa caucuses existed before, but he won the Iowa caucuses, right? And, and uh, then people said, oh, who's this guy who won the Iowa caucuses? Turned out it was the president when it was all said and done. And then that that's why I spend so much of my time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the idea that it is the, in a way, it's a, it's, it's a, at least a thought experiment of cutting through the big advertising money. Because if you go to these million little events in Iowa, the person-to-person uh, chemistry that Jimmy Carter was able to apply. And I guess Obama then, you know, that number of years later. But yes, Carter did sort of give us the Iowa caucuses for better and worse. Uh, and so I was a lovely place. Uh, I'll be back there in several days. <laughs> it's been all of several days since I was there last. Uh, the thing that you have now uh, fast forwarding uh, devoted your time to is this project of uh, looking at small towns all over the country. Uh, and I want to talk more about how that actually works, but but one of the uh, points of this for you is that uh, we have this national political uh, news, I don't really like the word narrative, but this sort of vortex that we're all living in. Uh, and it seems like that's the only thing going on often to people who are in Washington, like I am when I'm not on the campaign trail, or when you go to a democratic debate, like I have been doing, uh, that everybody in the world is watching, but really almost no one is watching it. (laughs) How connected do you think most Americans are to, forget about the campaign, but just the issues that we're talking about here, the issues that are on the front pages of the newspaper or on our homepage of The Atlantic every day? So on the one hand, Americans through the millennia have always paid attention to big presidential races, and we can look back to a dozen of them in U.S. history, which were big defining turning points, and whether it was Goldwater or Lyndon Johnson back in 1964, or the the famous one where the Atlantic gave its first endorsement with Abraham Lincoln in 1860, et cetera. But I I think that the, the process of politics and politicking is not as interesting to most people most of the time as it is to us in the business of of writing about politics. And I've been thinking in getting ready to come here and talk with you about the way in which working for the same institution, going to the same places with similar interests, you and I are seeing just very different sort of Rashomon Mm -hmm. versions of things because your job in Iowa is to ask people what they think about Trump and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and down the million-item list. And my job is to not ask them those things, to ask them everything else except that. And that, that's been – both parts of the uh, of the reality are true, but they're, but they're different. Are they paying attention to what's going on? 
Yes. I mean, everybody, I'm sure, is aware of the big lineup of, of candidates. But I, I, here is the At least that it's a big lineup. Yeah, that it's a big lineup. <laughs> uh, I saw some, some graphic on the cable news a week ago, and there's one person – I couldn't identify. I mean, I, I feel I could do it, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't Eric Swalwell. You know, he's he's been out since the summer, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it may have been a bad picture of uh, Bullock. That could have been. Uh, so Bullock was an interesting guy. But I, I, here, here I think. Let me offer this proposition. You can tell me whether it rings true to you. My experience is if if we ask my if my wife Deb and I ask people in let's say Sioux Falls, South Dakota, how the very significant refugee population there is working for better and worse in Sioux Falls. They have, they have our, our answers about that, about how the Somalis are good business people and how they've affected life in the packing house, et cetera, et cetera. If you ask people in Erie, Pennsylvania, about whether young people are moving in or moving out, our experience is you get the same kind of interestingly 3D answers you would if you listen to sports talk radio, which actually is quite astute. But if you ask them, what do you think about Trump? You don't hear anything interesting. It's all we love Trump or we hate Trump, and it's it's a universe of it's like everybody's IQ has gone down sixty points. Um, is that what you find when you ask them those questions? It's funny. I'm thinking as you said of outside of the debate in Ohio, uh, there was uh, a block where all of the uh, campaigns and supporters were all lined up shouting at each other and uh, they were shouting Trump, Trump, Trump and uh, love Trump's hate and uh, all sorts of things that were all signs on every which direction and someone in the crowd said it's like watching a Twitter war in real life <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that's what happens right around these political events but it is clearly not what is happening outside of that radius. And, and and obviously this matters. It matters that Trump got into office. It matters from my point of view that he not stay in office. And this this matters. And I guess the complementary part of the perspective that that I've been trying to write about is it's part of American life, but it's not the entirety of American life, which you would think from cable news each night. And, and it's you know it's important, but it's not the only thing. You use the term forgotten Americans. Are they forgotten by Washington? Are they forgotten by uh, reporters? Are they forgotten? And do they think that they're forgotten? I think that, that there is there was a narrative after the 16 election that I disagreed with. And the, the that narrative was, you know, I, I'm, I find myself, I don't think I've used the word narrative in my, it's a bad <laughs> ex, word. In my expressive <laughs> past, but that there was a concept that dominated a lot of, of news coverage after the 16 election, which was, Oh, we we have lost sight. We, the mainstream media, have lost sight of how unhappy they are out there, and how resentful, and how how bitter. And our experience, having been in places almost all of which Trump carried, having been there for the past three or four years, was that if you asked people specifically, "Do you trust Hillary Clinton?" They'd say, "Oh no, we hate her. She's a big liar. You know, those Clintons are crooks, etc." And a few would say the the reverse. But but if you ask them. Dodge City, Kansas, as a community, what's happening here? They talk about how actually the school system was now majority Latino, and the white taxpayers were happy to fund that, and that they recognized this was how things were evolving. And so you had – there was this particular realm in which people were, quote, forgotten and resentful, which was national media discourse and attention. And then there was the rest of their lives, which uh, were not in the same boiling cauldron of resentment. What – 
many reporters did after the 2016 election was head out to diners in the Midwest. Oh, God. Right? That was... So uh, I, I, you could you could fill a very fat book with the the articles that were written from diners in the Midwest and what they really had to say about Trump and what they really had to say about the Democrats. You and your wife did something very different, and, and uh, it is idiosyncratic in a number of ways, including how you made your way between these towns. So let's just rewind and walk through what what it is that you guys did. We had been living in China from 06 to 11 and most of the time then. And we had spent most of our time in China out in the boondocks. We'd take buses and when time we took an ox cart and we'd do things just to kind of get in away from Shanghai and Beijing, each of which we were, were our base. So when we came back to the U.S. and after we had recovered and regained our breathing ability and things like that, we thought it was um, – through my, my eons with The Atlantic, I've been sort of back and forth in D.C. I've worked for The Atlantic for more than 40 years. I've lived in D.C. for half that time and half elsewhere, sort of back and forth. So it was time to get on the road again. And so I've also been a longtime small plane pilot. We have a little four-seat, single-engine plane, a Cirrus SR-22, equipped with a parachute for the entire plane. That's a whole separate topic. And we thought, let's just go to some of these little communities we've seen over, over, over the years. And, uh, and the idea was, was not to ask them what they thought about Obama, who would... Been, so you just take off in the plane? Yeah, you just take off. And are you, how much advance work are you doing to, to decide which city or town to fly to? Um, a little bit. <laughs> but not so, a lot. <laughs> no, no, the, the what, what, what is uh, what people would be surprised by among many things in small plane flight is it surprisingly like just getting in your car and going someplace. You can go pretty much where you want. If you're not headed to LaGuardia or SFO, you can go basically any place and just show up. So we you just call down to the airport and say we're landing. Uh, yeah, and and only about a tenth of airports in the U.S. have control towers. So the other 90% you radio from 10 miles out, you know, this is Cirrus, we're 10 miles to the south, we'll be running on the left pattern, see you. And so, <laughs> so and we, we planned, we, we had a reason to go first to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, because I'd never been there in my life, and we, it seemed to be interesting and really was. Then we went to Holland, Michigan, now famed as home of Betsy DeVos or Kirk Cousins, you know, take your pick. Uh, and and w that was quite interesting, too. It's now majority Latino, and we're going up into to, um, a rural Maine. And so just cumulatively, what we thought was going to be about a two- or three-month project, we spent most of four years doing and developing an idea that there was a undercovered part of the current American experience that we were seeing in Red Oak, Iowa, for example, or in, in Abilene. And you do a little bit of work to decide where you're going. When you land, then what happens? How do you – what is the the process then of trying to get your arms around what's going on in the town? So, so Deb, who is the uh, sort of ground support manager of this whole project, she would have booked – usually a week's stay in something like an embassy suites or something that had suites in its title because then you would have a kitchen and also a laundromat. So we would go – we'd have booked, booked that. Usually we'd arrive places on a Sunday afternoon and we'd uh, try to find some ride from the small airport into the hotel. Often that was borrowing a crew car, which were 90 percent of the time these old Crown Vicks with spotlights on the side of them, you know, or recycled from the sheriff's office. Sometimes we – one times we kind of hitchhiked in Mississippi. Um, the, a couple places had rental cars. You hitchhiked? Yes. It was only about three miles, but it was – there was a guy in like a – 
pickup truck who could have been a character from Sling Blade who took us in to town in his pickup truck. Literally, there were hay bales in the back of the pickup truck. <laughs> so this was part of the glamorous life of the reporter. I do a lot of things on the campaign trail that are not that glamorous, but I've never been in a, never hitchhiked into a, a truck with hay bales in the back. Well, you're still young. <laughs> so we we set up a shop. We usually had a sort of first day or two of places we knew we were going to talk with the editor of the newspaper, um, the mayor or other city official, the librarian, head of the school system, some chamber of commerce. And what we'd ask these people essentially is, What's the story of the town right now, and who should we talk to? And then the who should we talk to tentacles went out in unexpected directions to business people, to universities, to to whatever. But overall, you've done a lot of these at this point. Is it the same sort of classes of people? And I don't mean class in economic sense, but they say, oh, go talk to the fire chief or, or go talk to you know, this person who runs uh, a neighborhood association or whatever it might be. The, the starting point was the same categories of people just because they're ones we could learn about from afar. But usually by the end of the first week, and we usually do two one-week immersions, we were talking to people we hadn't known existed at the beginning of the time. We were recently in San Bernardino, California again, which is the area I'm from. And the person who was sort of the civic leader of the moment is a former prize fighter who is now running a sort of prize fighting and guitar and chess academy for <laughs> prize fighting guitar and chess yes for for young kids there and we hadn't known he was around before we started <laughs> so so the world is the country is full of this amazing stuff we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more in a minute with Jim Fallows When I go around, and uh, it's not just flying around, I'm often driving for stretches uh, between stops. This is one of the things that really stands out to me is uh, that the country, the way that we think about it and the divisions that we think about, and this goes there and this goes uh, there, don't really match up. Uh, There was uh, in the spring I was uh, covering an event that Pete Buttigieg spoke at uh, in a park that was in South Carolina, but very close to the Georgia border. And in the recreation center attached to the park, there was a quinceanera going on. It smelled great Mexican food, but it's not what you would have expected in that part of South Carolina. You go around and see uh, CBD uh, for sale in a lot of places, uh, various different uh, ethnic markets uh, uh, that are, are in spots that you would never guess. Uh, I agree entirely. And as you have that story from the of the Kinsnera, I'm thinking of, of a time when in the first couple of days, Deb and I were in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They have a giant bike trail that's like 25 miles long that goes around the whole town. And the town itself is a tableau. There's a giant slaughterhouse uh, in the sort of center of Sioux Falls. Uh, there's a penitentiary that's there. There's all kinds of high-tech businesses. And we were driving by some um, soccer fields that were by a river, and we saw two things in succession. One was a group of people bow fishing in the river, which is apparently a big thing in South Dakota, which I had not seen before. But you see these archers in the river. And then about uh, another mile or so down, we saw all these a really festive um, soccer game and picnic attitude that was almost all Latinos. 
And, and you know, Sioux Falls now is a significant. It's traditionally you know all white town, but and, and Native American, but a traditional, uh, but a significant immigrant and refugee population now. And so again, our version of what you saw in Georgia and South Carolina was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, this festive thing that could have been in in Latin America or Los Angeles, but it's not what you think from the red state, blue state narrative. Yeah, and I guess it's not just the the the, the division, but it it just feels like. For most people living their lives in the country, they are much calmer <laughs> than uh, we are. have never been more divided as a country than we are now, on the one hand. But most people go about their days not at each other's throats. And, and, and I wonder how you see that playing out in a way that maybe can inform the way that uh, we're all thinking about what's happening. So, so I will um, offer atypically a piece of data, and then I will have a question for you, actually, okay. turning on, on to you. So the piece of data is something that a guy named Sam Abrams, who's from Sarah Lawrence and, and the American Enterprise Institute, the, a sp- giant study he's running of, of sort of public attitudes towards America, the, the first installment of which came out early this year, and what they found in a very, very large-scale survey is that by a significant margin, probably 60, 40, even more than that, people felt that America as a whole was dysfunctional, polarized, unable to talk about things, et cetera, et cetera. By a bigger margin, about two to one, they felt as if their own communities were able to do those things. You know, and they felt as if their own communities had some practical basis and were able to cooperate. And by a larger margin than that, they felt good about their own their own prospects. You know, it feels a little bit to me like uh, when there are polls done about opinions on Congress. It's yes. always in, in the toilet. But then people will say, well, what do you think about your own member of Congress? And they're 90 percent approval rating. Right? Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and, and so there's something about, number one, the reality of national politics, which actually is as – it's not as bad as during the Civil War, but it's pretty bad. So national politics, the reality of it is bad. And also the way in which people understand national politics that's not within their direct personal experience makes it seem even worse. Yeah, it's okay here in Greenville, South Carolina, but it, but it's a hellscape out there. The question I have for you is Deb and I had the crutch of we never had to ask people, what do you think about Romney? What do you think about Obama? What do you think about Hillary? You have to ask those things. How do you do that without draining the IQ from people? <laughs> uh, it is a, it, you ask it in as open-ended a way as possible. What do you think? What 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 is it that's catching you about this person or that person? I'm often seeing these people at now an event for one candidate or another candidate. So I'll ask something like, "Well, why why show up for this person?" Uh, and uh, you can get a uh, deeper answer, sometimes a clearer answer that way. Uh, if they are showing up for a Democratic candidate, they're obviously predisposed to not be voting for Donald Trump. And uh, so it's it's a somewhat skewed sample group for me. Uh, and that allows me to not ask the question, really. I know what they think of Trump. Mm-hmm. If you're showing up at an event right now in Iowa for a Democratic candidate... Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you're showing up an event at all as opposed to being helping your kids with their homework right. or doing any other normal things of life, it shows that you are predisposed to thinking about these national issues. And, of course, Iowa knows that's their job right now. Right. I'm, I was in Iowa just about exactly a year ago with Kamala Harris when she went for her first trip there. 
And we were in a town called Indianola, pretty close to Des Moines. It was a Monday afternoon, I think, at 2 p.m. The bar that this was going on at was not open, but the upstairs room where she was speaking was completely full. And I was like, of course, because it's Iowa. That's what happens on a Monday afternoon. Everybody shows up to a person who at that point wasn't even running for president, although we all knew that she would be running for president. Uh, And that experience has uh, replicated many times with why are you even here? Yeah. <laughs> um, but they are they are committed to it, and 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 that is one of the things that has been sort of strange to see play out uh, in a more intense way with this election than ever before. That people will just go and they'll go to as many events as they can. And to ask you a related question, um, I have long been so I'm from Southern California originally. And so I've long had the view that that New Hampshire and Iowa, two very different kinds of states, very small, less ethnically diverse than others, they have too much influence in how we choose our Everybody leaders. outside of Iowa and <laughs> New Hampshire thinks that that's true. But, but <laughs> as, you, as you've seen it on the ground, uh, what, what's the good and bad of having Iowa play the role it does? The bad is uh, pretty simple. They are not representative of the country as a whole in uh, demographic or economic terms, uh, to pick two of the most major <laughs> categories. Uh, Iowa is, is overwhelmingly white, for example, although there are some African-Americans there, some Latinos there. Uh, and the issues that drive New Hampshire and Iowa can be somewhat idiosyncratic and not connected to the, the what's going on in other parts of the country. The, the most famous example is ethanol, ethanol in Iowa. Ethanol, of which course. <laughs> I, I will tell you, in covering this campaign, I believe that of all the events I've been to in Iowa, only one time did it come up uh, huh. as, a, as an issue, and it was on Beto O'Rourke's first trip to Iowa, and he was in... Uh, he was at a at a bar, and a lot of its events happen <laughs> at bars. Not a lot of drinking going on, and uh, in Mount Pleasant in Iowa. And he was asked about what he felt about ethanol, and that he was from uh, from Texas, so obviously had taken. Uh, it's been well documented a lot of campaign contributions for people who work for oil companies, and he answered in a way that clearly was not the right Iowa answer on ethanol to this woman. And then I went up to her and asked her afterwards, this was in March, uh, well, he didn't say what you wanted to be. There's a full commitment to ethanol. Do you care? And she said, no, it seemed interesting. And so that, as the race has gotten more nationalized, those local issues are not uh, playing out as much. And some of that, uh, I think, is really at uh, a disadvantage to the race and to the people in the states. For example, in New Hampshire, the opioid crisis is intense, and you do not hear that as an issue talked about uh, in the campaign trail very much as opposed to uh, bigger things like what we're going to do about healthcare or mm-hmm. immigration, economy, all very important issues, not local issues. So those are the knocks on, on those states. I, the, the real pro <laughs> for Iowa and New Hampshire is sort of at this point, Iowa and New Hampshire voters are very sophisticated and taken mm-hmm. very seriously. And they are smaller states, so it is possible to, at this point, sometimes in the course of a day, go see a bunch of candidates. Uh, they, they can get a little cocky about this and say, you know, famously, uh, in Iowa, they say, like, well, I've only met the candidate three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure what I think uh, of him or her at this point. Uh, and so 
but but the kinds of questions that they get asked are usually pretty sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, and certainly not just whatever's playing on cable news. When the Mueller report came out, uh, the immediate cable news reaction was, well, what are Democrats going to talk about on the campaign trail? And having been on the campaign trail at that point for a long time, right, you know, six months or something when the Mueller report hit, uh, it didn't come up that much at all. Huh, uh, and, and and it still hasn't. And, and impeachment now is obviously more uh, an active topic, but even that is not what is coming up so much. So here's another question for you. Uh, so, Jim, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is not the way that we lead this podcast. Well, this, <laughs> this is, you know, the improvisational world of, of journalism, making it up as we go. So there have been a number of, of these, these uh, cable news-sponsored Democratic debates, and there's a line of questioning that to me epitomizes a difference between how people in journalism think about vetting the candidates and how most of the voters do. And that is all the sort of pushing, looking for minute differences on what the Democrats are going to push about a health care plan. Mm-hmm. Is it Medicare for all? Is it Medicare for all who want it, et cetera, et cetera? The reason I object to that is my experience in politics teaches me, number one, that whatever they're saying now has basically no bearing on what it would be like to get something through the, the, the Congress when, if any of these people wins. And number two, the differences among the Democratic candidates are like 1% of the difference between any of them and, and the Republican position. And so this seems as like it's um, – a political journalist's attempt to find, oh, here is division among the candidates as opposed to something that matters to the voters. What say you? I, I think it. Uh, we've now had six nights of debates. Uh, healthcare has been a topic for about 30 minutes at each of them. So that's like two hours worth of conversations about healthcare. Uh, most of them have been inscrutable to me, and I am paid to... Uh, go <laughs> and to be sitting there <laughs> and to be watching it, and I'm paid to know the details of this. I, I do think that uh, th- there are some fundamental questions of do people actually want to get rid of private insurance, which is what Medicare for all would entail. Um, how do you pay for Medicare for all if you won't want to do that? That's obviously been an issue that Elizabeth Warren was really pressed on in the last debate, uh, and I think gets it bigger issues for her. Uh, But I would, as a professional campaign reporter who has been covering this campaign for now a year, (laughs) uh, my first trip to Iowa for the sake of this campaign properly, although the previous trips also, was the beginning of October 2018. So uh, over a year of campaign, I could not and I, I would challenge like the candidates themselves uh, to do better than I would at this point, uh, tell you the difference mm. really on the details of this plan versus that plan. You know, what, what Warren would do, what Sanders would do, what Bi- Judge would do, what Harris would do, what Biden would do, what, you know, go down the list. They all have their health care plans and they all are different and they all have smart people who have spent time building the policy. But uh, it's all these theories and uh, – There was one moment in uh, the second night of the second debate in Detroit when Kirsten Gillibrand, who has since dropped out, stopped the conversation. She said, you know, I think that this comes down to uh, we as Democrats want to protect Obamacare and build it out and the Republicans want to get rid of it. And that was one of those moments that 
just sort of caught the attention of everybody because it is it, it, these discussions have gone often into very strange places. And and I, I do think that uh, you also see that each set of moderators and moderating a debate is hard, uh, but each one wants to get that answer on healthcare, And so they have often been asking the same questions. I have a, um, a related short question for you, then an observation. So I was in my mid-20s when I was working for Carter. I felt as if, as if on the campaign trail I got a year older every day. Is it the same feeling if you're covering it on the last year? Are you 100 years older than you're 300 years older than you were? <laughs> in covering previous campaigns, I talk about it often as like a vice that you feel getting tightened uh, day by day. Uh, so I'm starting to really feel it. And uh, I think that we will. Uh, <laughs> by the time the Iowa caucuses come on February 3rd, we'll see. I might have as much gray hair as you do. <laughs> yeah, you'll be as old as me then. <laughs> then you'll overtake me. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let's just close with this. You have spent all this time going around to these towns, uh, we have this uh, overlay of national politics and national division and, and the national conversation. Where does this all land us? Are, are we going to be okay as a country? <laughs> I, I realize when uh, James Bennett, our former Atlantic editor, I was talking with him six or eight years ago when, you're here, when he was here, and I was saying essentially every piece I've done for the Atlantic in 40 years has essentially had the theme, is America going to make it? <laughs> because it's been from the Vietnam era, you know, through Japan and China or whatever. And I think that, that it, is, it is not certain that the American national governing model is going to make it. One of the arguments I pushed in my time in China is that only a country with as many things in its favor as the U.S. has, scale, resources, all the institutions we have, location, et cetera, only a country with as much in its favor as the U.S. has could stand our system of national government, which I think is really, um, it, it's out of date in, in many ways. So it is possible that it's sort of reached its, its breaking point. It is more likely, I think, and I say this having seen a lot of bad times for the U.S. myself personally and having you know, tried to, to learn about them, it is possible and, and more likely that there will be a sense in the public we're better than this. We can do better. We have all these examples locally of schools and drug programs and sustainability programs, and somebody will come up, as happened with Carter you know, 40-plus uh, years ago, just saying that you know, we, we, we can do better. And so I think – we will find a way to be okay, but the battle is with all of us every day. All right. Jim Fallows, thanks for being here on Radio Atlantic. My pleasure, Isaac. Thank you. That'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by John Baptiste. You can find show notes and past episodes at theatlantic.com slash radio. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. <laughs>